Now recently we've begun to look at the subject of some of the curtains and the coverings. And really what we're referring to there is the roof of the tabernacle. And the curtains and the coverings really complete the structure except for the pillars of the door and of the veil. As you read in Exodus 26 and again in chapter 36, you discover that there were two sets of curtains and two sets of coverings. If you read chapter 26 and then read chapter 36, they are spoken of in both places but in different order. In Exodus chapter 26, the order is from the inside to the outside, because that's God's order. And that's true of the tabernacle in general. The first thing that the Lord said in chapter 25, when he told Moses to make a sanctuary that I may dwell among them, was, after this, according to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it, and they shall make an ark of shittim wood. Now if you think about the tabernacle as a whole, the ark is at the very center of things. It's all the way on the inside. It's not just inside the outer court. It's not just inside the actual tabernacle or tent itself. And it's not just in the holy place. It's in the most holy place. It's in the holy of holies, right at the very center of things. And it is remarkable, is it not, that that's where the Lord begins. He doesn't begin at the outside with the fence and then the outer court and then all of the different pieces. He starts at the very heart of things. Well, it's the same with the curtains and coverings. The Lord begins from the inside to the outside. That's his order. He plans from within the sanctuary. But we, as believing sinners, approach from without, from the outside. But in each instance, we can observe that the curtains and the coverings teach us something about Christ. We see this in the tabernacle generally. The Lord is the foundation. The Lord is the chief cornerstone and He is the top stone of the church. Christ is all and in all, to quote the Apostle Paul. Last time we noted the first covering of badger skins and the second covering of ram skins dyed red. Now we're not going to go back over and cover that ground again. If you need to think about that, then you can get the message from last Lord's Day, either online on Sermon Audio, or you can watch again on Facebook Live where the video is uh, uploaded. But there was a first covering, badger skins. And we noted what that referred to. Of course, when we come to things like this, you might say, well, it's conjecture, is it not? You're, you're kind of guessing as to what it means. Well, in a sense, that may be true, but you can also compare Scripture with Scripture, which you always should do, and you can get a feel for what the Lord would be saying there. And I pointed out a portion in Ezekiel chapter 16, and in verse 10, 
we read about the Lord saying that He shod thee with badger's skins. And this was a protective covering. And it reminds us very much of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the covering of all those who put their trust in Him. We are safe in Him. We are secure in Him. The Lord will keep from us the scorching rays of the wrath of God. They have been already spent upon His body. To us, our Lord Jesus Christ is the equivalent of the badger skins. But then the ram skins dyed red. We made reference to the ram and the significance of it in Scripture, not only in relation to the priest and how when he was being consecrated, there was the use of the ram of consecrations. You read about that in Exodus 29 and also in Leviticus chapter number 8. But we made reference to the ram there in Genesis 22. And what a wonderful story that is of Isaac going with his father Abraham up to that Mount Moriah, to that same range of mountains where the Lord Jesus later died on Calvary. And there was enacted there a scene that's typical of the cross where the Father took His only begotten Son and He was about to offer Him up. But then there was the voice from heaven, don't kill Him. And Abraham looked behind Him and there was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns and he took that ram and offered it up in the stead of his son. And so Isaac now changes from being a type of Christ to being a type of the sinner who is redeemed by Christ. And what a tremendous thought that is suggested to us by the ram's skins dyed red, which again, incidentally, they were dyed by a process that involved a crushing of worms so that the liquid that came from that was used to dye those garments and to dye those coverings. Again, it's reminiscent of the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we said as we proceeded through last week's message that it's important to note that the first set of curtains was always called in the Hebrew the Ochel, that is O-H-E-L in English, or if you like, the tent of the congregation. That's the first set of curtains. It was the tent. And the second in Hebrew was known as the Mishkan, M-I-S-H-K-A-N in English, or tabernacle. So that in reality, strictly speaking, The tabernacle was not the tent, and the tent was not the tabernacle. The tabernacle was inside the tent, and the tent covered the tabernacle. The tabernacle was God's dwelling place. The tent was man's meeting place. But we go from there to the curtains. We've mentioned the coverings. We want to think about the curtains And just as there were two coverings, there were two curtains. Not in number, but the actual type of curtains. You will notice that there were, in one instance, 11 curtains, but 
they were divided into two materials, really. The first curtain was made of goat's hair, and the second curtain was made of fine twined linen. And once again, these things are deeply suggestive. Let's think about the first curtain of goat's hair. Now this actually comprised a set of 11 curtains, as I just mentioned. Each curtain 30 cubits long and 4 cubits wide. Joined together, this set of 11 curtains formed one great tent. 30 cubits by 44 cubits covering the tabernacle in its entirety. Now, these curtains were made of goat's hair. Now, when you think about goat's hair, you might immediately imagine that these curtains must have been white. And a lot of people make that mistake. They would think immediately that the goat's hair curtains must have been white. But they were not. They were black. Some people, when they're describing these curtains, have made that mistake, whether by picture or word. Uh, They have illustrated these goat's hair curtains as being white, and they will speak of them as representing the righteousness of Christ. That's a lovely thought, but it's not actually consistent with what took place. The reason that people conclude that is because goat's hair in the western world, and that's where we live, is white, generally speaking. But the tabernacle was built in the east, where a white goat is actually a great rarity. Eastern goats are black. And by the way, you might have wondered when you read your Bible and it talked about a shepherd dividing the sheep from the goats. And you say, well, that's not hard to do. In our culture, that's true. But if you lived in the Middle East, if you went to Israel, for example, or some of the Arab countries, I can guarantee you that unless you were a trained eye, you would confuse goats with sheep. They look alike. In fact, they look very alike. And that is the significance of what the Lord was referring to when he said that the the Lord in the end at the judgment would separate the sheep from the goats. The reason that that is significant is that it's not an easy thing to do. It's something that is for a trained eye. See, there are those who are goats and not sheep. They are false professors. They are hypocrites. And everybody thinks they're sheep, but they're goats. And of course, the opposite could also be true. But the Lord knows them that are His. But to come back to this, eastern goats are generally black. And as we think of this, we consider two references in Scripture which reveal to us that the goat's hair is black. Bearing in mind that all the tents in the east are made of goat's hair and are spoken of by the Bedouin, those traveling people, as their house of hair. You might have thought that that was a barber's shop, but it wasn't. 
The house of Her is actually a place where uh, the Bedouin shepherds would live. Now, turn to Song of Solomon, sometimes referred to as the Canticles. If you read the writings of Spurgeon, if you read his daily readings, for example, quite often you'll see that Spurgeon talks about the Canticles. He's referring to the Song of Solomon. Chapter 1 of that great book and verse number 5. Notice what it says. I am black but comely or attractive. O ye daughters of Jerusalem, as the tents of Kedar, as the curtains of Solomon. That's significant. Black. Now, carefully read the story of Jacob and Laban. You go back to Genesis chapter 30. And the Bible speaks of these two men, both of whom were very cunning and very crafty. Both of whom were actually out for personal advantage. Both of whom sought to outwit the other when the opportunity might afford itself. And these two schemers are found to be bargaining in Genesis chapter 30. Read from verse 25. Genesis 30 from verse 25. And it came to pass, when Rachel had born Joseph, that Jacob said unto Laban, Send me away, that I may go into mine own place and to my country. Give me my wives and my children, for whom I have served thee, and let me go, for thou knowest my service, which I have done. And Laban said unto him, I pray thee, if I have found favour in thine eyes, tarry, for I have learned by experience that the Lord hath blessed me for thy sake. And he said, Appoint me thy wages, and I will give it. Then there was this transaction that took place, and this arrangement, where Jacob said that he would feed and keep the flock, that he would pass through all of Laban's flock, removing from them all the speckled and spotted cattle, all the brown cattle among the sheep, and the spotted and speckled among the goats. He says, and of such shall be my hire. Jacob proposed to Laban that he should have all the speckled, spotted, and ring-straked goats. In other words, all the ones that were other than black. He didn't want the black ones. Now, if in the natural course of events, these were in the majority, we couldn't imagine that Laban would agree to that, for he was a wily character as well. But in verse 34, he actually does agree. Behold, I would, it might be according to thy word. And that's surely sufficient evidence that the goats were naturally black. Then it was that Jacob began his plan to get the better of his uncle Laban by putting whitened sticks in front of the watering troughs of the goats that were with young. He mesmerized them, causing them to bring forth their young in an unnatural way, and hence they were born ring-streaked, speckled and spotted, and he actually won the better of the bargain. Not surprising when you know the kind of man that Jacob was. And without being racist, I have to say a lot of his progeny have inherited that trait. That's a fact. 
You go to the Middle East and you try to bargain with Arabs or Israelis. They're both equally adept at driving a hard bargain. It's in them. And we see it in the Scripture. And I don't want to go down that line tonight, lest people would misunderstand. But that is a fact. It's also a fact that the Jewish race, generally speaking, anything they put their hand to has succeeded. You can check that out in history. They're at the top of the tree when it comes to medical research, when it comes to all manner of different inventions. You think that's by accident? I don't. They are a special people. But listen, remembering what has already been remarked about the difference between the Ohel and the Mishkan, the tent and the tabernacle, we see that God in the tabernacle appointed that he should dwell within the house of Hare as Israel did. What a foreview that is of Christ. Emmanuel, God with us, or if you like, God in Christ Jesus, dwelling in the same human form in which we find ourselves. He's bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. Made like unto his brethren. It has been said that an eastern shepherd wears a sheepskin coat because he likes the sheep or he thinks the sheep like to see him as one of them that might be a sentimental idea but the ideal of that is seen in the Lord Jesus because he is in the form of the sheep is it not an interesting thing that when Isaiah was describing the sufferings of the Lord He spoke of him as a lamb and as a sheep. He said, as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Verily, says Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, He took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Let me just say something else about the color of these curtains, these goat's hair curtains. Their color being black instead of white, we would have to necessarily change what is a usual interpretation of many. Instead of the suggested righteousness of Christ, we see Christ as the sin offering. That's what it suggests to us. And that interpretation actually brings a beautiful harmony with it. First, with the general teaching of Scripture concerning the goat, because the goat is a type of sin. In Leviticus chapter 9, verse 3, a kid of the goats was to be taken as the sin-offering animal. That is significant. A kid of the goats. When you come to chapter 16, to the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, as the Jews would call it, that's the Hebrew, you'll find that two goats were used for one sin offering on the Day of Atonement. One goat that was killed, its blood shed, the other goat that was a scapegoat, on which was laid the sins, symbolically, of the people. And as I've already suggested, when it comes to the judgment, and you can read about it 
in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 32, the sheep and the goats represent the saved and the unsaved nations. Now how did Christ come? He came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Now, you must be careful with the language of Scripture. He did not come in sinful flesh. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. For remember, he had no sin. He knew no sin. He did no sin. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens. But he was in the likeness of sinful flesh. The likeness of our flesh. And is it not an interesting fact, and every children's worker will confirm it, that we usually employ black as the emblematic color of sin. And some people have been very foolish and thought that that was somehow, that which had a racial overtone to it. And so instead of singing, my heart was black with sin, they sing, my heart was dark with sin. Well, what's the difference? It's the same thing. It's nothing to do with race. In actual fact, when we talk about people's different skin colors, it's just a matter of the pigment of the skin. If you cut a person open from whatever race, whatever ethnic origin they are, you cut them open, their blood is the same color. It's red. God has made us of one blood. But there is no doubt that blackness, darkness, is associated with sin. The Lord Jesus talked about hell, and he referred to it as the blackness of darkness forever. So here we have this. The goat skins. The blackness representing sin speaks of Christ bearing our sins in his own body. And I've said that this is an interpretation that is in harmony with the general teaching of Scripture, but it's also in harmony with the general teaching of the curtains and the coverings. Because if you study it, you'll see that all three outer fabrics speak of the sufferings of Christ. As one put it, the badger skins, the despised Christ. The ram skins, the substitute through death. And the goat's hair, the sin offering. And these three outer fabrics remind us of our Lord and His sufferings. And these all bring us to the inner beauty that's seen in the fourth curtain. Which speaks of His perfect life. And thus it was that our Lord brought many sons to glory by His sufferings. Now think of the number of the curtains used. Everything in the Bible is significant, including the numbers. There were 11 of these curtains. They were sewn together in groups of 5 and 6. We read that in our Bible reading. And then the two pieces, the 5 and the 6, were united by 50 brass tashes or clasps laying hold of a 100 Blue loops, 50 loops being in each of the two selvages. Now, 11, according to some biblical numerologists, is the number of disorganization. 
11. Remember there were 12 disciples, but then there were just 11 when Judas was found to be a traitor. There are two illustrations of that number. The one I've just mentioned, the betrayal of Christ by Judas, resulted in Judas leaving the twelve. And from the time of the Passover feast to the day of Pentecost, it was always the eleven, not the twelve, the eleven. And during this period, everything was disorganized, if you like, as far as the disciples were concerned. But there's another instance, another illustration, and it is in the story told by Joseph. If you turn to Genesis chapter 37, Joseph was a dreamer. And his dreams got him into trouble. The things that he dreamt about, I believe, were dreams that were significant. There were things that the Lord gave to him. But his brothers didn't like the dreams. Because they were pretty good at interpreting dreams. And they realized that Joseph was talking about himself when he, when he referred to those sheaves that were going to be bowing and making obeisance to his sheaf. He didn't have to tell them what that meant. Because in Genesis 37 verse 8, his brethren said to him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us? Or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream. And here's where the number comes in. Genesis 37 verse 9. He told it his brethren. He said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren. And he didn't have to interpret it to them. Because it says, his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee, to the earth? See, old Jacob was wise, wasn't he? He knew the sun and the moon represented him and his wife and the eleven stars, the brothers. And it says in verse 11, significantly, Genesis thirty-seven eleven, and his brethren envied him. They're full of jealousy, but his father observed the saying. Jacob remembered that. He knew that there was a definite significance to it. Now Christ, as the sin offering, certainly disorganized the work of the devil and put him to flight. Ten curtains, we find, just covered the tabernacle. The eleventh, or if you like, the sixth, as it was called in verse 9, showing the way round that it was placed, was to be doubled in the forefront. See, when the coverings were put into position, they covered all the curtains except this one that was thus hanging. So that the people of Israel saw one eleventh of the coat of the goat's hair curtain exhibited whilst the other ten elevenths remained unseen by man. Now what's the significance of that? Well if you look into the life of Christ, 
we see, I believe, the meaning of this. How long did the Lord Jesus spend on this earth? He lived for 33 years. That's 11 times 3. Two elevenths, if you like, of that life, 30 years, were spent in secret except the incident at the age of 12 when he as a Jewish boy arrived at his coming of age and so he was brought to the temple. You read about that in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. And at the age of 30, John said, Behold, and he pointed the people to the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And so for the last eleventh of his life, you see where I'm going with this, 30 years, that's 3 times 10, then you have the last eleventh part of his life, the 3 years, 3 elevens are 33. For the last eleventh of his life, those 3 years, his earthly ministry, he was revealed to the world in what capacity? He was revealed to the world as the sin offering. As John declared him to be, behold the Lamb of God was taken away the sin of the world. And it's no wonder that the disciples on the road to Emmaus said that their heart burned within them as he opened to them the scriptures from Moses and the prophets. These things ought to cause our hearts to burn and our souls to rejoice. It's behind the work of Calvary and beyond the sacrifice of a great sin offering that all spiritual blessing for us lies. The goat's hair curtain. But then you have this second curtain. And what was it made of? We'll go back there to Exodus chapter 36. And you will see that it was made of fine twined linen. Fine twined linen. This set of curtains is always called, as we've indicated, the Mishkan. Translated, the Tabernacle. It was given that name because it was actually the roof outside which the building is not a true house. Without which the building is not a true house. You had to have that covering for the thing to be completed. This comprised ten curtains, each one that was 28 cubits by 4 cubits. They were sewn together in two sets of five and joined by a hundred blue loops taking hold of each other and fifty golden tashes or clasps, making the total dimensions of 28 cubits by 40 cubits. The whole of that fabric was worked in blue, purple and scarlet as well as fine twined linen with a design of cherubim. The cherubim were sewn into the fabric. Now, have you noticed, you will notice if you study it, that the colors are always mentioned in the same order. We saw this when we studied some time ago, the priest garments, the holy garments for glory and for beauty. It's the same with the hanging over the gate, the entrance 
to the tabernacle. It's always the same order. Blue, purple, scarlet. Purple, if you like, is a harmonizing color, which brings the other two together. Those who are artists will know this. When a kid hasn't got in his little paint box purple, he mixes red and blue. And he gets purple. Now we think about this in relation to our Lord. There's a lot that can be said about these colors. We've already mentioned their significance. But if we just give you this bare outline and and, and think about this, these colors are to be seen not only at the gate, the hanging over the gate, the door, the veil itself of the tabernacle on the inside, but also the high priest's ephod. Same thing. Blue, purple, scarlet, fine twined linen. It's all very significant. Let me refresh your memory about the blue. You look up at the sky, and oftentimes, more often than not in this part of the world, you'll see some blue. In fact, there are days, such as some days we had recently, when we were away, when the entire sky was blue. Not a cloud in the sky. Blue is a heavenly color. Blue is always associated with the sky. We talk about the blue sky. And it is the emblematic color of divinity and of grace. You look up into the blue heavens. How impressive they are. There are times when clouds come temporarily between us and the blue Temporarily they blot out the sky, but they never pollute it. Because the blue is high above all the clouds and the mists and the fogs. It used to be quite amusing to me when I would take a flight from somewhere like Glasgow, Scotland, and it was lashing with rain on the ground, as it was most days. You get into an aeroplane... You'd ascend and you'd go above the clouds. And there was the blue sky and the sunshine. And then all these clouds below. And I thought, those poor critters down there are all getting soaked. And I'm up here enjoying the beautiful blue sky. It's always blue up there. The sky's always blue. The sun's always shining. It's just that we don't always see it. It can be temporarily blotted out. But the blue is high above all the clouds and the mists and the fogs. Nothing can pierce the heavens or even reach them. Someone wrote this. What is man's ten miles ascent into the stratosphere when we remember that the moon is never nearer than 220,000 miles from the earth? These are mind-boggling numbers. The sun is 93 million miles away. Light, traveling at 186,000 miles per second, takes four years to come from the nearest fixed star. And then people say there's no God. But think about the divinity of Christ. Men get into their higher critical balloon and they propound some conception of God and of Christ but how foolish they sound and look Christ is divine 
And who can approach such a subject with his shoes still on? Ungodly men, even ministers who don't believe, they can blot out the view of Christ with their clouds of doubt and their mists of modernism. But what of it? It doesn't matter. Their silly clouds will disperse. All their notions will disappear and the Lord will remain. For He is the Heavenly One. And remember this in your life's experience. There's times when, even as a Christian, there may be clouds that come into your experience. And you can't see the Lord. It just feels like He's not there. You can't get a vision of Him at all. I want you to know He's still there. He still remains. He's high above it all. The heavens are without limit. They're unchangeable. They're eternal. And Christ dwells in a glory that is uncreated and in a divinity that is unfathomable. We can't figure it out. Canst thou by searching find out God? Job asked. One man said of the Lord Jesus, one holds the pen of a ready writer when writing concerning him. The blue in these curtains typifies the Lord Jesus as the divine Son of God. Scarlet. Again, we emphasize this beautiful color. It's the third one. Uh, But for reasons that we can understand, When we deal with the purple, we deal with the scarlet. If we were in the Holy Land, as we call it, the land of the book, we could appreciate the significance of this color, scarlet, more because it's the color of the Palestinian earth. It's red. But we turn from the blue to the red, And in doing so, we drop our eyes from heaven to earth. Think about Adam. Who is Adam? He's the first man. The name given to man in Genesis, do you know it comes from a root word in Hebrew meaning red earth? Adam, the first man, was of the earth earthy. You read that in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus was the second man, the Lord from heaven. Another beautiful illustration of this truth is to be found in Esau. You read Genesis chapter 25 and verse 25. Speaking of the birth of these twins, it says, And the first came out red, all over like a hairy garment. And they called his name Esau. Esau then was a red-haired man. But of course he was also an earthly man and his desires... And to satisfy an earthly gratification, he he sold his birthright and a spiritual heritage. It all went for a mess of red pottage. So red or scarlet typifies the fact that the Lord Jesus was human, that he was the son of man. And of course, as a man, he suffered for our sins. The blue speaks of the Lord's divinity. The scarlet speaks of the Lord's humanity. He's the Son of God. He's the Son of Man. But then between the two, there's this color blending the two 
into each other with a wonderful harmony. It is the purple. A mixture of the blue and the scarlet. If we take the divine and the human in Christ and we blend them, what do we have? A perfect mediator. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He is the great king. The purple is that which they put on him when they mocked him as the king of the Jews. Then, of course, there's the fine twined linen. That becomes the background of the rest. How could Christ be all that he was and accomplish all that he did accomplish unless he was the holy and perfect and pure, spotless, faultless Christ of God? We see Christ in the fine twined linen as the sinless one, the righteous one. Even as Revelation 19 puts it, the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. But it's not their own righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ imputed to them. And then it says with cherubim, the cherubim speak to us of protection. We see them at the gate of the Garden of Eden. What are they doing? They're keeping the way of the tree of life. And again, they're on the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. What are they doing? They're guarding, as it were, the sprinkled blood. And in the curtains they become part of the ornamentation of the ceiling of the tabernacle. When the priest looked up, in seeing those cherubim, he would be reminded that God was looking down upon him. Then we think about the ten curtains. There were ten curtains, each twenty-eight cubits by four cubits. They were sewn together in two sets of five, and then they were united by Fifty golden tashes or clasps in 100 blue loops, making the total dimensions 28 cubits by 40 cubits. Now, 10 is an accepted typical number for division. And there are a few instances of that in the Bible. When we think of this numerology, we're reminded of the Ten Commandments, divided into two sections, one showing our duty toward God, the other our duty toward man. And so they were written on two tables of stone. Ten commandments. There were ten virgins in the parable that the Lord spoke in Matthew 25. Again, they were divided divided in their outlook. Five were wise. Five were foolish. On your body, there are ten fingers divided on two hands. You have ten toes divided on two feet. And here are ten curtains. You'll notice they're divided into two fives. How does that apply to Christ? Well, Christ is a divider. That's a simple truth that comes out of it. Christ is a divider. Oh, we live in a day when it's all about, let's all get together. Everybody's the same. And it's the brotherhood of man and the fatherhood of God. And we're all, as they say in Scotland, Jack Thompson's bairns. But the Lord Jesus said, Matthew 10, 34 and 35, I came not to send peace, but a sword, and come to set a man at variance against his father, etc. And yet the Christ who divides is the Christ who unites his people with the tashes of his love, the clasps of love. And what does he do when he divides? He divides us from worldly associates 
and he unites us to himself. He divides us from the old life. He links us with a new life to which we are attached with Christ in God. Christ is a divider. Christ also came to divide the camp of the enemy, calling out a people for himself and linking them to the Lord. We are unashamedly and avowedly separatists. If there are people that belong to my denomination who don't like that description, that's their problem, not mine. Because our church professes to be separated unto the gospel. We profess to be a separatist church. In speaking of one of our ministers' impending retirement, some brethren at our recent presbytery referred to him as a thoroughgoing separatist. And I like that. Those who follow Christ will seek to be separated unto the gospel. But our time is gone, and I just want to mention this, the 50 golden tashes, or you could say clasps. In the goat's hair curtains, significantly, you'll observe that the tashes or clasps were made of brass, and that they linked together the hundred blue loops But in these linen curtains, the tashes are golden, not brass. And the loops take hold of each other themselves. And so, here is a progression, such as can be noted everywhere in the tabernacle. The metals, you see, increase in value as we approach the center. From brass to gold. The security, therefore, becomes stronger the nearer you approach the center. In the first, the tachés hold the loops. In the second, the loops hold each other, and the tachés become a double security. When the curtains are in their place, the fifty tachés lie immediately above the golden fillet which holds the veil and divides the Holy of Holies from the holy place. And again, 50 is a significant number because 50 is the number of Pentecost. There was a feast of Pentecost described in Leviticus chapter 23. In verses 15 and 16 of that chapter, the Bible says, And ye shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that ye brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete, even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall ye number fifty days. And the fulfillment of that in the New Testament was in Acts chapter 2 verse 1, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come. When did that come? Exactly fifty days after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. What happened then? Well, the Holy Ghost descended in power. And rested upon each and every one of the disciples. And they were all filled with the power of the Holy Ghost. And thus there was this great sending forth of the Spirit of God. That our Lord Jesus prophesied when he talked about not yet being glorified. For the Spirit was not yet given. It means it wasn't given in power. That happened on the day of Pentecost. And so the early disciples entered this New Testament dispensation of the Spirit. 
And we're still living in the age of the Spirit. Someone said Pentecost has never been repeated. But neither has it been withdrawn. The Holy Ghost is here. Where saints on earth agree. Someone said the disciples in those early times when they were filled with the Spirit could have sung I have passed the riven veil where the glories never fail. I am living in the presence of the King. The age of the Spirit. So the 50 tashes, the 50 clasps prefigure all that Pentecost represents to the church. Pentecost in the Old Testament. Pentecost in the New Testament. And it implies Pentecost today. The curtains, they speak to us of our Lord Jesus Christ and various aspects of His person and work. May the Lord give us the mind of the Spirit as we study further in the tabernacle things that represent wonderful spiritual truth that is of benefit to us today. May the Lord give us eyes to see those things.